Congratulations to all of our graduates from high school, from college, and those who are on the way in the years to come to being our graduates in high school and college. So as we uh, begin today, our scripture lesson comes from the 11th chapter of Acts, and I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? And then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa. Remember that last week we talked about the city of Joppa, That's the city that Jonah, the prophet, tried to leave from to go to Tarshish, all the way on the western side of the Mediterranean Sea, so that he would not have to preach to Gentiles. In the New Testament, this is the city from which the mission to the Gentiles that Peter engages in actually comes from. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord. For nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. And then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very same moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak... The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? And when they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, use your servants' lips and your people's ears and hearts that they may be joined together this day so that the seed of your word 
might be planted and brought forth with a resurrection joy. Amen and amen. We start off with this image of Peter on the roof. Now, I had an aunt who I thought was the biggest busybody of anybody I knew. She lived next to my grandfather, and one of the things that my cousins and I loved doing when we were children was getting up on roofs. And so we would climb the, you know, back then we had TV antennas. And, and you, if you could climb up those things and get on the roof if they were close to the house, attached to the house, and we would do that. We would go on the second story of an older house on the property and we'd get out on the roof and we'd make our way up on the back of the house by the tree up to the top of the second story. There were also grain silos and we loved to be on top of those too. And my aunt would always see us from across the field and call and our fun would be over with when someone would step out of the house and say, y'all get down from there, y'all get down from there right now. Well, Peter's up on the roof. There are a couple of things that happen when Peter is up on the roof. Peter tells the story of what's happened as Cornelius the centurion has been praying in Caesarea. Now, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, we have Joppa, the port city, which we talked about last week. And due north of Joppa, the port city, is Caesarea, which is where Cornelius the centurion lives. Cornelius is praying, and he sees a vision. And he stares at this angel of God in terror, and he says, What is it, Lord? And the angel of God says to him, a chapter before where we are now, in chapter 11, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter, and he is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. So that's what's happening up in Caesarea. Cornelius the Centurion is praying, and the Lord says, go send for Simon. Now, Simon is praying too. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey uh, approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, Peter fell into a trance. Now, I'd love to say that I was just following Peter when I like to be on the roof of the house, but in fact, in the first century, houses looked a little different than they do now, and getting up on the roof wasn't such an unusual thing. Um, one of the things that you can see with, with the size of, this is a typical double-wide trailer for, for comparison, uh, you can see that the size of a house in ancient Israel is about half of the size of a double-wide trailer. And here's just a cross-section of what a house would look like. So we had these, these square kinds of houses that on the bottom floor had room for all of the animals. And so there was a large courtyard where at night... Before everyone went to bed, they would bring all of the animals in, and they would stay on the first floor of the typical Near Eastern house, or typical Israelite house, actually. Um, the second floor was the place where 
the men and women and children of the household would sleep. And then you will see that there is a ladder that goes up to kind of a thatched roof up top. And that's an interesting place to be because it's higher than the rest of the house, more likely to have a kind of breeze that blows across it, be comfortable there in the summertime, be comfortable at night. Uh, during the daytime, not so much, but especially at night. And so the roof is the equivalent of the front porch of ancient Israel. The roof is the equivalent of a place where you would go to kind of be alone, to be outside, and that's where Peter went. That's where Peter was when he had this vision of the sheet full of animals coming down. When he got the vision, he immediately left and he went to Cornelius, the centurion's house, and then something strange happened. The people in Jerusalem find out what he's done, and they call him on the carpet. They say, get yourself down here and explain yourself. And actually, much of what happens in chapter 11 uh, happens in the form of a trial. It's not every element of an ancient trial that takes place, but it is, in fact, a, a a chapter that contains many of the elements of a trial from biblical times. So, to begin with, we have the accusation that is leveled against Peter. Here's the accusation. Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? The problem wasn't that Peter and his companions had gone to preach to the Gentiles. The problem was that instead of just preaching to them, they actually began to interact in meaningful ways, including one of, culturally, the most intimate kinds of settings, which is eating. You want to know who your good friends are? It's who you eat with. You want to know who uh, the people in your, your family are that you're closest to? It's whose house you go to to eat who comes over to your house to eat. And so the ancient Israelites, the Israelites of Jesus' time, found it problematic to eat with those who did not share their faith. And so to this accusation, Peter offers a defense, and he offers a defense by telling the story step by step. So Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, this significant city that has to do with getting the message out to the Gentiles. I was praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision, and there was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. And as I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, Beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. Now, those of you who have read Leviticus recently, in addition to going to sleep, you probably also came across the idea of the clean and the unclean. The animals that were ritually available to eat without, without having any problems and those that you were to avoid because they were problematic. And so Peter sees all of these animals there in this sheet. 
And I heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, no way, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice came from heaven. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. And then everything was pulled up again to heaven. So the first part of the trial is the accusation. You have gone out to eat with unclean people. Peter offers his defense. He tells the story of what happened. And then Peter has evidence. Now, the thing is, when people come up to you and say to you something like, well, God told me to tell you that. Eh. God told me to tell you that might be another way of saying, I think God told me to tell you that you're an idiot. (laughs) Means, you know, I, I think you're an idiot. God told me to tell you that we need to spend more time doing X or Y. The evidence is lacking. And we should always be careful about saying what has God told us and what is from divine prerogative. Because if we're using the God said to me that as another way of saying this is what I want, then we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We are usurping the throne of God for our own use and for our own benefits. But Peter has evidence. He tells the story, and and look at this. The Spirit told me to go with him. Okay, that's a personal kind of thing. And not to make a distinction between them and us. But then he's got six witnesses. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So it's not just Peter's word what happened there in Cornelius' house. It's Peter's word together with the testimony of the six people who are standing with him. And, And so one of the witnesses that Peter points to, to what's gone on, is those whom he took with him. The second witness is is what God brought to bear in that situation that was obvious to everyone around. Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, these Gentiles, these people that you don't want me to have anything to do with, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just like it fell upon us at Pentecost. Suddenly, Something has happened that is undeniable. These six men with me, they can testify to the evidence. They can testify that something happened there as I was preaching. And so Peter offers then, if you think about the the structure of an ancient trial, we don't have the introduction, but there is the accusation. There is the words of defense. There is the the calling of the witnesses, in this case, the six people, and the work of God. Peter offers a conclusion. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I 
that I could hinder God. One of my old teachers, Ben Witherington III, if you are into uh, New Testament scholarship, he's known as BW3. Ben Witherington says, the basic defense offered here involves the transference of responsibility for what happened, even for Peter's own actions, to God. If God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed, who was I that I could hinder what God had done? And so the question then is do the people in Jerusalem find this explanation satisfactory? The question is, how does this trial go in Jerusalem? Well, we see how it started off in verse 3. The accusation, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them, then becomes in verse 18, when they heard... Peter's explanation. They were silenced. And they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance. Another way of saying that would be the conversion that leads to life. The question is answered at this point, at least for the moment, The question is answered as to whether the movement of Jesus is a Jewish movement or whether the movement of Jesus goes out to all the world. The question as to whether this is a Jewish phenomenon or whether the Messiah has died on behalf of the sins of the entire planet is answered for the moment, but only for the moment. You would think if you just read chapter 11 of Acts, where Peter kind of goes on trial in front of the church in Jerusalem, you would think that that might settle the issue. But even Peter wavers. And even Peter wonders whether what he has said is in fact true. In Galatians... Paul talks about what happens later on after this. In Galatians, Paul says, But when Cephas, another name for Peter, another name for Simon, again, we can can see how confusing the Bible can be to people who are not steeped in it, who don't read it all the time. Simon is Peter. Peter is Cephas. Cephas is Simon. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. I got up in his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, now the leader of the church in Jerusalem was James. So just like in chapter 11 of Acts, it was Jerusalem where Peter was having all this trouble James, in Jerusalem, the head of the church in Jerusalem, when when certain people came from Jerusalem, he stopped eating with the Gentiles. Before they came, he used to eat with them, but after they came, he drew back. And he kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision 
faction. And so it takes a while. Even for Peter, who has elegantly and eloquently told why the message to the Gentiles should continue. Paul is concerned about it in Galatians because Paul understands this to be his special calling. His special calling is to take the news of the Jewish Messiah that he has come to save the world and to spread it all over the Mediterranean region. And Christianity is not just a sect over on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea because Peter and Paul have taken it all over the Roman world at that time. It takes a while. Our scripture today is from Acts 11, but it takes four more chapters before this issue is settled once and for all. A great conference takes place in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we read certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question went up with the apostles and with the elders. It takes a while for this question to be resolved. And after once again, Paul gives his understanding that he is to take this to the world. And after he reminds Peter of his understanding that even the Gentiles have access to the Jewish Messiah, the council comes to a conclusion. And they write to the Gentile believers all around the Mediterranean region. Where were they going? Look in the back of your study Bible and find the map that is the missionary journeys of Paul and recognize that almost all of the arrows that go from the missionary journeys of Paul are to Gentile regions. And the reason that you and I are sitting here today is not because we are a part of the people of Israel by biology. The reason that we're sitting here today is because ultimately Peter and Paul and Barnabas argued that the work of Christ was for the world and not only for the tribes of Israel. The work of Christ was for the world. They wrote this letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, their letter says. Farewell. 
And so after Acts 15, the door is open. This, this door that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world, that his resurrection gives us new life, that the spirit that he sends to his apostles is the spirit that goes out into the world, that Pentecost that happened among Jews happens also among Gentiles, that the spirit that guides men and women to truth and faith and life is open to you and to me. The door is open, and the ministry and the mission of Jesus is for everyone, for everyone who will walk through the door that God himself has opened. Now, if you have been reading the Bible for a long time, you know that the Bible used to say the Acts of the Apostles. That used to be the, the title of the book of Acts. Now it's mostly just called Acts. But if we were to give it a more accurate title, the characters that appear from the beginning to the end of Acts are Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So instead of the Acts of the Apostles, we might just as well call it the Acts of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who opens the door to men and women who will walk through it. Opens the door to forgiveness, cleansing, transformation. Christ opens the door. Maybe there are some things in your past that you wish had gone differently and you don't even know what to do about them because you, you find it hard to untangle what has been tangled up. The door is open for you. God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Some of you may be struggling because a serious relationship in your life was broken and the person with that broken relationship is, is now deceased and there's no way that you can make whole what was broken again. You know what? The door is open to you. Jesus Christ takes you as you are and says, come to me. All who are weary, all who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Maybe you need that rest. On your shoulders is this weight of guilt and shame. On your shoulders, you've allowed something to continue to weigh you down. But the door is open. The door is open to Gentiles, to Cornelius and his family. The door is open to the world. Jesus died for the sins of the world, for my sins, for your sins. Jesus died to transform me, to transform you. Jesus died to make me holy and whole. Jesus died to make you holy and whole. The door is open. Will you say yes and walk through that doorway to abundant life? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have a video now uh, 
from our college ministry, 